0: Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear, I want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy, discussing the most practical solutions to a decarbonized economy. I'm David Weston, and with me once again are two of my favorite co hosts in the podcast world Michaela Hull of Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosnow of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi, team, back together once again. Finally.
1: You're too kind. You're my favorite moderator. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
0: Today, we are examining the role of carbon removal projects, what role they might play in the energy transition. With time against us, merely reducing emissions may not be enough to offset the damaging effects of climate change. So taking these emissions out of the atmosphere is one of the tools in our arsenal. Our guest this week is Eva Tam, founder and managing director at climate policy advisory firm Climate Principles. Eva is also chair of the Zero Emissions Platform and advisor to the EU on deployment of carbon capture and storage and carbon capture and utilization, and a member of the board at Puro Earth, a crediting platform for engineered carbon removals, and an advisory board member at Carbon Gap, which is helping Europe deploy carbon removal projects. Thanks for joining us, Eva.
2: Thank you for inviting. I'm very glad to be here. Looking forward to the chats.
0: Uh, as are we. Just to begin with, uh, then, could you possibly very briefly describe why carbon removals are important um, and why can't we just rely on decarbonization and electrification to meet climate targets?
2: Yeah, well, to explain that, we have to take one step back. In the past, we were looking at reducing emissions and kind of trying to get to zero emissions, if anything. But then obviously at some point it became clear that achieving zero emissions is not possible because we will always have some that we call residual emissions in some sectors. You can think of aviation, you can think of agriculture, for example. So this is where net zero as a concept was emerged basically. And and so we cannot achieve net zero emissions without removals. That's why removals are important. Um, we always need to prioritize reducing emissions, So, but removals will need to be scaled hand in hand with very steep emission reductions so that by the time we need to have removals uh, to balance those residual emissions and maybe get to negative emissions, then we actually have them available because if we don't prepare for it now, we will not have enough removals available by the time we need them.
1: Can I jump on one term you used right there? Because I think it's already it's already opening up the first box in this complicated topic. What exactly is unavoidable and residual? And would you agree that any use in the energy sector is not unavoidable? I don't think
2: I have an answer to the last part of your question, but to the first one, what is unavoidable, what is residual, what is hard to abate. Um, Sometimes I would say some of these emissions might not really be hard to abate, but instead inconvenient to abate or too expensive to abate. It's not defined, and that's the big problem. And I know that many stakeholders are pushing for having a definition, but we also know that it's not really in the interests of, for example, the governments to define it because everyone wants to define it in the most convenient way for themselves. So that's why we have seen studies for example looking at countries climate pledges where you know usually we are thinking you know you reduce emissions by 90% and you have this last 10% or 15% and those you'll have to balance with removals. But those studies show that countries are assuming, I think, in some scenarios, more than 20% residual emissions, which basically means that how this is understood is is not even. Everyone interprets, uh, interprets it in their own way. And we have to make progress bearing this in mind, because I don't think it will change anytime soon. I wish it would. But being a realist and being in this space for the last twenty years, I think it's quite unlikely. So we have to work with the with the fact that it's it's not defined.
3: Eva, could you say a few words about uh, your organization, you know climate principles, uh, what you do, what your work is in this space, uh, in particular, because I think some of our listeners might not be familiar with the organization. I must admit I haven't heard about climate principles. Uh, Before, um, and I'm interested myself to hear about uh, what sort of work you do. Um, And yeah, maybe just embed your work on carbon removal um, activities more widely in the work that you do with Climate Principles.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, So, Climate Principles is a climate policy advisory, and uh, we work with a very broad set of stakeholders. So, we work with corporates, starting with startups to scale ups to multinationals we work with ngos we work, we work with governments um and we we can get more spef- specific in corporates uh, i mean that really includes financial institutions think tanks consultancies and and so on and and actually different types of organizations are looking for different type of advice uh so the great thing for us is because we work with such diverse list of of stakeholders, our view is is quite neutral because we are not sitting in one corner and looking at things from from one specific filter. But um, it also shows how different stakeholders have different needs. The corporates want to tend to understand what is happening and what it means for them. The NGOs uh, tend to want to have advice on how to influence what is happening. And, and the governments uh, tend to want to get input on how to, how to design policies. And we, so we specifically work on carbon capture, carbon removal and carbon markets and on the policy side of things. Um, and, and really the, the guiding light here is, is what does the atmosphere see and, and i's advising the, the clients accordingly. And actually, on top of this, so there's the current principles, but i myself am um, I'm quite known as an expert in the field and and kind of trusted and respected voice by by having the experience that I have. And, and making sure that I can, I can do what I can to bring some clarity to this complex policy discussion. So I'm writing my own policy blog that's quite well read. And, um, and yeah, so I'm trying to make impact on, on different fronts.
1: How many um, fossil-based hydrogen producers look for your solid advice on carbon capture these days, if I may ask? None. I'm not surprised. We might need a definition for low carbon first for that to happen. Thanks.
3: Maybe just to follow up on Michaela's question. Uh, so where where is most of the demand for carbon removal coming from? I mean, there is, of course, CCUS, where you use the carbon to get maybe more oil out of material oil fields and things like that. Um, yeah, then there, there will be potentially, uh, I suspect, some industries that want to reduce their carbon footprint. But just so we get a better feel for Where's the demand for carbon removal actually coming from? You know, is it, or is it, is it offsets that people procure? Like, what what's the main demand driver that actually um, results in a in yeah you know, in a business activity around a carbon removal?
2: So, from your question, I'm I'm taking the liberty of assuming that in your mind you don't very clearly distinguish CCUS from carbon removal. So maybe to just explain that difference. We have CCS technologies. I mean, we can also talk about CCU, but in this context, it's mostly CCS that's that's applicable, where you capture CO2 and then you transport it and then you store it. and uh, And so these technologies can be used for reducing emissions. So you know that that can be on 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 for example on gas power plants. It can be CCS on waste to energy plants. Uh, it can be uh, CCS on bioenergy plants, or it can be CCS uh, well direct air capture plants that also uses carbon um, CO two transportation storage. So CCS technology can be used to reduce emissions. It can be used to remove emissions, and uh, we sometimes hear people say that CCS is not carbon removal; that these are not the same things. But it really depends for what kind of um, for what kind of system are you using these technologies for in the end? Because you're using very similar technology, whether you put it on the, on a fossil f- fuel burning plant or you're putting it on on a biomass plant, right? but you get different results. One reduces emissions, the other one removes emissions. So I understand you're asking about the removals and where does that demand come from. And these days, um, and you're, you're talking about the novel removals. So we are, we are dividing removals into conventional removals, which we already have. We, we are removing around two gigatons per year globally through afforestation, reforestation, soil carbon sequestration, all these kind of things. We've done it for a long time. And then we had the novel carbon removal methods like bioenergy with CCS, direct air capture with CCS, uh, biochar, enhanced weathering, and so on. So I expect that your question is about the novel carbon removal and the demand there, right? And I think what's uh, where the most demand has been coming from these days has been the voluntary carbon markets. But uh, the tax incentives, for example, in the U.S. are starting to also have quite a big impact on scaling, for example, direct air capture there. Um, So I envisage that there's going to be a change. Voluntary market is very small, and it's just not equipped to help scale um, these technologies because voluntary carbon market is, what, 2 billion U.S. dollars. Uh, the size and, and compliance markets are more than 800 billion. So it's obviously that if we talk about even carbon markets as a tool, it will have to be compliance markets that are used to scale removals. But this is only one policy tool. There are so many other things that can be done to scale removals in addition to carbon markets. So um, I'm always very careful also when people. people talk about carbon markets, like this is the one thing that will make removals happen. That is definitely not true.
1: Um, If I may come in, unless uh, we want to continue talking about technologies, because you mentioned the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act already. Um, And I think also COP28 uh, carbon removal is an issue. And if I'm not mistaken, in the Net Zero Industry Act of the European Union, actually this sector is the only sector that got a target, the carbon removal, the carbon removal injection target. So um, so this is this now an era of uh, comeback or new start, the next hype? Uh, and um, because we just had one hype, my favorite hydrogen, what are the things we would need to sort out before?
2: Thanks. I feel like I'm here. I'm doing the, all the fact checks. So in the Net Zero Industry Act, it's not the removal targets, it's CO2 Injection. storage targets. yeah.
1: Injection. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's an injection capacity target, to be specific. Uh, we can talk about storage targets because I think for general audiences, maybe easier to understand that in the end it's meant for storing CO two. Uh, and you can store CO two whether it comes from emission reduction activity or from carbon removal, right? Uh, but mostly this uh, proposal was written with emission reductions in mind because most of the CCS technology should be used to reduce emissions. Because the fact is the more CCS we do now, the less carbon carbon removal we we need later. And the less CCS we do now the more carbon removal we need later, and we don't want to need a lot of carbon removal in the future. We want to need as little as possible, which means we have to do a lot of other, like deploy all the other technologies, including CCS to reduce emissions first. So the, the main goal of this piece of legislation that is now currently, I think soon getting into trilogue phase. is is to reduce emissions through it. But of course, having that infrastructure built out will also catalyze carbon removal projects like bioenergy with CCS and direct air capture with CCS. But that is rather uh, a kind of result of that, but not the main driver of of this target being put forward.
1: Yeah, I have one follow-up question on that. I've seen the CCS ladder that the think tank E3G um, published. Mm And somehow I couldn't help but think there is exactly the similar risk as we had in hydrogen that we storm ahead. And with the pretext of um, we need to upscale, that we put it everywhere, including, for example, on top of coal, which is the sector where we have so far tried CCS, which is a difficult sector, from what I understood from our previous podcast, but which in the latter is in the lowest level. If you may, I don't know you—you know probably what I'm talking about, or you were involved even. Um, okay, so that's the last follow-up question on this. <laughs>
2: I don't have the ladder in front of me. I remember saying it, no, I was not involved, full disclosure. Sometimes I'm involved in so many things, but I have not been involved in this one. Um, so I think we need to be realistic in this fear of too much CCS. Currently, we don't have any CCS projects up and running in Europe, right? Uh, Well, in Europe, we have in Norway, but in the EU, we don't have any, right? So we are talking about this in a situation where currently we don't have any projects, whereas we need a lot of CCS. Then in a European context, no one is talking about CCS on coal. I mean, I haven't heard about this in, in any of of the discussions uh, in, in the context of, of EU policymaking because the focus is industrial decarbonization. That's why the upcoming strategy that the commission will uh, publish in the, in the first quarter of next year is called industrial carbon management strategy. The word industrial there is clearly very, very deliberate. Okay. So we wanna have CCS, most likely on applications like cement. We want to have it on the waste-to-energy plants that still need yeah. to be running because ideally we will recycle as much as possible, but we have some residual waste that we cannot recycle, so it makes sense to to, to burn it and get energy from it and capture the emissions and potentially use waste-to-energy to get net negative emissions from it. Um, so it's not about putting CCS everywhere and we have so little CCS. Yes, we have a pipeline of projects, which looks promising compared to what we had, say three years ago or five years ago, but the, f- if the fear of having too much of it is completely unfounded, these are expensive projects. There is not that, that much, mi- that no, much funding no, to know. around. I'm not
1: afraid to have it much, I am afraid to have it in the wrong places because as you said, there's a bit of a trade-off between carbon removal long-term, CCS short-term. That's what I'm yes, trying to get. Yes, that
2: we should be doing, we should be prioritizing CCS because we should be prioritizing emission reductions. That's that's kind of the ABC of, of climate targets and that's what we need to have separate targets for, for, for climate, making sure that emission reductions happen and also that CDR is being uh, scaled up next to it. Um, yeah.
3: I also have one follow up question on the market and then maybe we can move on to a different topic. Um, but just to get a, a sort of sense of the scale of, of this, you know, how big is this? Are we talking about a um, few small pilot projects? Are we talking about a, a multi billion market that's growing at a very fast rate? Uh, I think it would be useful to just get a, get a sense of scale here. If, if you have numbers like that in front of you, I think that would be, rather useful so we can get a better get a sense of how big the market actually is and, and how fast it's moving.
2: So I, unfortunately, I do not have the numbers in front of me. Had I known this, I could have so easily made sure that I have the numbers, uh, but I don't have them. The, the reality with these projects is if you look at the reports of what we need, then these are always huge numbers. But then if you look at the actual pipeline of projects, the numbers become smaller and of course in the pipeline of projects not all projects end up being developed so um, what what we do know is in the EU we are aiming to have the 50 million tons of co2 storage uh, in, in co2 in, in injection capacity so that kind of indicates how much of co2 we want to store so that's under the industry act and that's for the that's for the EU. So, if you then expand it to the EEA, we talk about larger numbers than that, because there's a lot of storage in Norway. So, these are these are not small numbers. We will need to rely on CCS quite a lot. But of course, it's only one very small piece of the whole decarbonization puzzle. So, anytime I talk about CCS, I fully acknowledge that that is, that is definitely less than 10% of all the emission reductions. But if we don't do this, we, we don't have a chance of getting to where we need to get. Hi,
0: everyone. Me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, it means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe how are governments and national governments and the european commission and i guess even the, the u.s government and other things how seriously are they taking carbon removals in general uh, more broadly um we've obviously got carbon markets in some regions but are they also supporting things like direct air capture and um nature-based solutions as well
2: So governments are still, I I would say on the learning curve, some are more ahead than the others for, I mean, still quite recently when governments were talking about carbon removal targets, they only had in mind LULUCF targets. So that stands for land use, land use change and forestry and that's all this conventional carbon removal that i referred to in the past now many of them are kind of learning about novel carbon removal especially countries that have the that have the right geologic conditions for co2 storage they obviously know a lot more but i think when we when it comes to novel removal because it's so specific to geography. Some countries have a lot of forests, so they will they will work with that. Others have abundance of, of CO2 storage. They'll probably, uh, they will probably develop the storage reserves. Um, others have a lot of waste biomass. They might be looking at biochar. So it's, it's very different what countries will end up doing from one country to another. The same way it works for emission reductions. Because if you look at the emissions profile, let's say, you know, Luxembourg has, I think, more than 60% emissions from the transport sector. And then you have Ireland that has huge amount from the agriculture sector. And then you have Estonia, where I'm from, which used to have a huge amount from the from, from energy sector. So these countries will use very different tools to reduce their emissions. So the same way the countries, when they look at carbon removal, they will use different ways of removing CO2 because they will do what makes most sense in their territory and what's available for for them. The challenge is that we don't currently have, and I hope that the upcoming 2040 climate target brings clarity here, we don't have kind of clear guidance to have both separately emission reduction and carbon removal targets on the country level. Some countries have done this work, but like very few are detailed enough on both conventional removals and novel removals. So we're still at a point where many policymakers need to be educated. I think most anymore are not questioning the need of removals because otherwise, as I said, there is no chance to get to net zero. But we still have long road ahead. We still have a lot of confusion between what is CCS, what is CDR. and I mean, I understand the challenge because there's so much information and decarbonization is so broad. I can only imagine the topics that you go through in, in your podcast here, for example. No one can know all of this, but making sure that the policy know that the basics on which they can build upon like that's that's super important. So we have countries developing um, policies to, for example, scale up certain carbon removal methods. We think about Sweden and their reverse auctions for BECS, for example. Um, but it's it's still quite early days if you look at mm. like the whole European perspective.
3: Eva, that's why we have this podcast, because nobody can know everything. And we get people like yourself and many others to um, To correct us. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and to correct us, um, of course, and educators.
1: (laughs) Um,
3: I wanted to um, um, ask a bit of a historic question, if I may. Um, There there has, of course, been uh, quite a lot of activity also in the past. You know, this is not just a new thing that has sort of fallen out of the sky, you know, carbon removal has been around for quite a while. Um, and um, yeah, there is a, an academic paper, which I read um, a, f- a few months back, which um, was I think it was the title was something like Three Decades of CCS, What Went Wrong? And uh, it's sort of looking at the project pipeline versus um, sort of the, the, the targets that were announced before. Um, it looked at some of the EU funding that was, um, I think, announced in 2007, 4 billion euros, um, to fund 12 projects, but you know, not a single project was realised. So the question is, um, what is different this time? You know, what what did what did go wrong? Um, or maybe the paper was too negative, but it was written by people who um, were self-confessing to be um, advocates of of carbon sequestration, and and they weren't they weren't uh, critics of it, but they were disappointed by the slow uptake. So I, I wonder whether you. Um, can just shed a bit of light on the history, um, which seems to be rather uh, troublesome uh, for carbon removal.
2: So I'm I'm really sorry to make the same point again, but I guess that's what I'm here for, right? You are talking about CCS, and you are not talking about CDR. So maybe maybe we should have a kind of a graph in front of us describing both. Um, so in in this specific context, we haven't talked about novel CDR for thirty years. That is relatively new phenomenon. We've had, let's say, the last ten years, and more prominent in the last five years. So what you're referring to is carbon capture and storage as emission reduction technology. So that's uh, that's where we had the the policy tool or the funding tool co- called NER three hundred where we had projects in the pipeline. And uh, and what happened was there were just simultaneously several unfortunate events coinciding. Uh, on the one hand, the economic recession happened and the carbon price just completely dropped to next to nothing. So what used to be a large amount of money became very small amount of money because this uh, this fund similarly to the innovation fund under the ETS today it was made up of allowances so Right now, it's really cool to say that, oh, the innovation fund is that many billions, and now it's that many billions, you know, as the allowance price goes up. Well, we've, we've seen the opposite, and that was what happened at the time, where the allowance price, allowance price, I think, it dropped to around five euros or something.
1: Yeah, it was five um, euros at some point. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So there was just a lot less money to go around to to aid these projects. And simultaneously, we had some governments... Just very suddenly completely walking back and stopping to support projects, I, I know there is at least one example in the UK. Um, we had also some unfortunate situations where the local community engagement wasn't done properly. I think there is an example there from the Netherlands where I'm currently based actually so um, so there were many different things that happened at the same time, and for one reason or another, none of these projects materialized. Today we are in a completely different situation. Because first of all, we have very ambitious climate targets. Second of all, there is much more clarity from the policymakers that we need CCS. I mean <laughs> the most amazing example amazing example is the Net Zero Industry Act, where actual storage I mean, CO two in injection capacity targets is 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 being put forward. I think even two years ago, no one would have even uh, dared to dream about something like this. Who, who worked on CCS? So that's huge. So there is, uh, yeah, and countries who used to be completely anti CCS, like like Germany, like Austria, they are all opening up their thinking on this front and and moving forward. Um, with the project pipeline is 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 looking great. The question is how to get all these projects funded. So we are in a completely different situation. But what I want to see is having this first round of projects actually being developed to really show that this is not something that's is theoretical, but that's something that is actually happening, and we see it happen, and we see it work, and then having that catalyze. The next, the second, and the third round of projects that get the funding and really have a strong CCS industry in Europe.
0: Obviously, carbon removals isn't solely on CCS, and again, you know, we've we've run into various different definitions here. Is there an emerging market for other? Carbon removal projects, again, direct air capture and um, nature-based solutions as well. And part of the issues I've, I come across when I look into these um, some of these projects is the um, transparency uh, of some of these markets and the ability to account for them effectively and accurately. Could you possibly just touch on that and, and what the issues are around that and how perhaps we can overcome them?
2: So you're, I think you're kind of, I don't know if on purpose or or just by accident, you're nudging me to talk about the EU's carbon removal certification framework. Is that it, or is that?
0: Let's learn about that as <laughs> well.
2: <laughs> let's let's learn about that. It's next week, right?
1: No, the vote um, or is it?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it's soon. I think so. So the challenge with novel carbon removal methods is that they're not really. Currently in, uh, covered in EU's climate targets because we don't have a way of accounting for them, and the European Commission uh, proposed at the end of last year carbon removal certification framework that aims to tackle that. The aims to establish uh, specific accounting rules and, and I mean the framework in general for 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 carbon removal, and um, it's uh, it's something that will lead to I would say. EU standards uh, that is going to be governed uh, by the European Commission that at least is expected to be something that's very robust, very very transparent, um, very clear. So that will likely uh, reduce some of the concerns that the market is very opaque and it's not clear. I do think that there are so many players in the voluntary carbon market that have worked years to change that. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, I'm on the board of Pure Earth, for example, who have done a lot specifically on novel removals and being the first in the world to develop uh, several novel carbon removal methods for for, for carbon credits. Um, So I think with everything that's happening in the voluntary carbon market now, we, it is moving us to a place where there's more clarity, there's more transparency. So things are looking great. It's just the, the whole question that also this carbon removal certification framework in Europe is supposed to have voluntary carbon market as one of its use cases. As we recently learned from the commission in one of these expert group meetings where they said that, well, they might, they're not even sure if that's going to be the main use case, which came as a surprise, I think, to quite a few stakeholders. Um, but, in reality, we know that this is being built uh to be ready for compliance markets and to be ready for i mean to be used in the under the upcoming twenty forty climate targets so we are i think we are moving away from the situation where we have these new removals and we don't know how to calculate how much they actually remove like we are we are getting to the point where where we can do these calculations and and we can count these under the climate targets and we can and we can we, we can show, hopefully separately for removals and separately for emission reductions, how how the EU is moving forward.
1: You said when you started this uh, this explanation, you used the word "it's supposed to provide clarity." So does it provide clarity? This proposal that is going to be voted, or doesn't it? Like with you know with regard to what you just say, differ differ the categories, um, or uh, the permanence. Mm-hmm of the, the, the storing the carbon away.
2: Yeah, I'm careful with my words because I used to be a diplomat. And so I use these words on purpose because well, it is still a proposal. It can change in different ways. We don't know how it looks like. And one thing is how this framework regulation will look like. And yet another thing is how the methodologies will look like that will be developed under this framework. And the framework is not yet agreed. So I cannot say with certainty exactly what's there because things can change. And, and on the front of methodologies, we don't, we don't have any methodologies yet because uh, the, the expert group that works and advises the Commission on, the, on Carbon Removal, and I'm actually one of the experts in their group, we cannot start working on methodologies before the framework is approved. Because otherwise, we might be working on things that don't fit the framework. That makes perfect sense. So that's why I say it's supposed to do that, but it remains to be seen if it will do it.
3: Um, Eva, I would like to ask you another technology question and one about direct air capture. Because that, yeah, there was a lot of coverage, wasn't there? I think about a year ago when um, I think in Iceland, a direct air capture facility uh, was starting to operate and there was lots of um, discussion about the cost and you know, how quick this could be scaled. Uh, so I just took a look at the um, International Energy Agency's uh, latest assessment of direct air capture. And so the IEA says that there are uh, 27 direct air capture plants that have been commissioned to date worldwide Uh, capturing 10,000 tons of CO2 every year, which doesn't sound all that much. Um, The question really is how fast do you think this technology could be expanded, scaled? Um, Do you think the cost will come down? Um, I mean, some of the numbers cited on the Iceland project were really quite high. Um, I think in the range of, uh, from memory, 1,000 euros per ton of carbon captured or or even more than that. Um, So give us a sense of, what is this a credible technology to play a significant role in carbon removal in your view? Uh, and and if so, how quickly could it be scaled? And do you think the cost could be brought down?
2: So I guess I will start with a disclaimer that it's going to be one of many technologies. It's not going to be the one technology because every carbon removal technology has limitations. But if you think about solar, it was also very expensive in the beginning and then it got cheaper. Uh, I think the challenge with direct air capture is that we, we if you we look at projections, we do see prices coming down, but maybe not to the level that is as low as we would like to see. Uh, but the 10,000 tons that you quoted, uh, we have quite a few large projects in the pipeline. So that will change in a couple of years, I think quite dramatically. Uh, Direct Air Capture has, in my view, done a great job in communications. So they are really popular um, among the financiers. Um, uh, they, I mean in the US they can they, they have loads of funding through the DAC hubs and, and through the 45q tax, uh, tax credits. Um, there is a lot of, of money going into it, so we, we will see progress. Uh, the prices will will have to decrease, but as I said, that's it's not gonna be it's it's currently one of the most expensive things we can do, and we have to work on on getting these these costs down to be able to use it a bit more. Some are saying that this is kind of this backstop technology that's if everything else fails, uh, we can just you know use huge sums of money and go all in in direct air capture. I do hope that we will never be in that situation.
1: Yeah. And bex
2: Well, bex is more tricky because it, is, it has the land use implications and, uh, and sustainable okay. biomass implications. Um, and that's why, and it depends because there are so many different ways of doing BECCS. Yeah, like waste to energy, whether it's about pulp and paper industry, whether it's about regular, you know, kind of combined heat and power plants. So there, I mean, we do see projects in the pipeline, they are able to find buyers currently also on the voluntary markets. So we, we have that, um, but I think, uh, these types of removals like DAX and backs, they, they will need to move away from this, this voluntary market playground soon and, um, come to the, I don't know, come come to the big league <laughs> where things are actually officially under under the regulation and um, and we will need a lot of support because also BEX is, is not that cheap right now. But if it were to be, for example, included in the EU ETS in one way or another, and it could, for example, be able to use carbon contracts for difference to bridge the gap between the EU allowance price and, and their actual price of, of delivering um, the credits, then maybe that could help.
1: Well, I might say that before I want to include backs into the ETS, I would first like to make sure that we don't waste bioenergy for other things. Like I don't know if you're following the gas package discussions at the moment. No, well, there is a discussion to adopt a, a very high and not assessed biomethane target, and I think it really takes away, as you say, there is a land use issue. Uh, so, I I just would think that there's there needs to be a reflection on where the biomass goes, and it shouldn't go into heating; it should go to BECS. So, I think uh, there's an urgency at EU level to get clarity about that
0: we're coming to the end of our time together uh, sadly we've got so many more uh, questions we could have asked uh, and maybe you'll have to come back on uh, after the plenary vote next week uh, and see what the outcome of that was before we go one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball what does the energy transition landscape and maybe even the carbon removal landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time
2: yeah i was thinking more about the energy transition Jeez, yeah. and i'm i'm just hoping that's in twenty years' time, no one even dares to think about grey hydrogen. That that's just a no-no. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, but if we here yeah, yeah. here, <laughs> but if you think about the carbon removal place, this carbon removal space, then uh, we we should be in the place where we have figured out a way to increase the conventional removals and and really do the the and everything that relates to nature protection but then we we are in a much better place with these novel carbon removal methods and hopefully we have some that are really mainstream that don't even exist yet today because this is a field that is seeing so much innovation on a daily basis so i i think uh, maybe we'll have some good surprises in store there
0: i hope so too before we go then let's go around the table and ask what caught my eye this week jan let's start with you what caught your eye
3: um so the joint research center of the european commission just published a um, pretty detailed study about heat pumps in europe and it's very detailed has lots of great stats in it um and has kind of come in under the radar i haven't seen anyone really talk about it so um I highly recommend people who are interested in heat pumps to look at that report. It's a pretty good source of data and um, uh, inspiration.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Michaela, what call your eye?
1: This week, um, an agreement was found on the first EU regulation on methane. Methane, that's responsible for a third of cl- uh, of uh, global warming. And well, it's it shows... Uh, two things, it shows, wow, great, that's amazing that we are starting to go there. But then if you look at the small print, you also see, oof, these things are difficult to do, right? It's about, you know, regulating imports in a time when we are in an energy crisis, so very highly political. So, But um, uh, a major piece of the Green Deal, actually, that was concluded.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Uh, Eva, what caught your eye this week?
1: Well... It was
2: the methane regulation, uh-huh. but as I cannot cover oh, no. that,
1: <laughs> as I cannot <laughs> cover
2: that, I just wanted to give a shout out to Clean Air Task Force, who has done an amazing job on this front. But if I had to say something else, then maybe uh, check out the um, global state of CCS reports by a uh, global CCS institute, because there you can see how the pipeline is developing globally. It mm-hmm. also includes uh, DAX and VEX. And I think there's some quite compelling visuals that come in in that report. Mm-hmm. So go check it out.
0: We'll check that out. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Uh, our producer, Kira, what caught your eye this week?
2: Oh gosh, that methane regulation was so major. I also, we really need to start
1: comparing
2: <laughs> notes. On. We should compare <laughs> notes Well, beforehand. I will just say, if people that are interested in the methane regulation, we had Yuta Paulus, who was one of the key negotiators, on for a podcast, and we can link that in the show notes. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to have to be very self-promotional because this is the only other thing on my head. Uh, yesterday, I got to moderate an event on steel in COP28, and it was a really fascinating discussion. Uh, and Epico, who are a think tank, have a paper coming out on it, and I would really recommend giving that a read when it comes
1: out because they're talking about the link between climate clubs and decarbonizing steel, how that will work with international cooperation. It was really fascinating to hear about that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting sector, that one. Uh, for me, it was the announcement from the UK government uh, about the sixth uh, contracts for different allocation round, uh, which open next year, but they've increased the maximum strike price for offshore wind uh, up to 73 pounds per megawatt hour, uh, about 84 euros per megawatt hour, up from the 44 pounds that it was in the previous round, uh, which had no projects bid for it. So they've increased to the uh, maximum bid, uh, in order to try and tempt investors and developers back to the UK offshore sector, which I think is obviously a very good move, although there was some headlines knocking around the UK press going, offshore wind's more expensive. Um, Well, yes, because people need to make money from it. So, yeah, interesting and uh, actually a good move from the UK government uh, for once. I knew you would pick that, Dave. How 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 did you guess? That's why I picked the heat pump
3: report, but (laughs) I knew you
0: would pick the the,
3: the offshore wind.
1: I knew you would pick a heat pump report.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Eva, Jan, Michaela, and our producer, Kira. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts or X accounts. Uh, I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Eve.
2: I'm at Eva Tanne.
0: Jan. I'm on Jan Rosenau. And Michaela. At One. If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at what matters pod or email us at show at what matterspodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.